Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 19. You can find it on page 816 in the Red Bibles under your chair. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 19. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come." He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Mike Stanzik. I'm the interim pastor here at Trinity Here's the thing about having an interim pastor with very young kids. He becomes an interim pastor who catches every illness his kids catch. So I'm once again standing before you today pretty under the weather, so I'll be looking for your grace as I preach, and don't shake my hand after the service. If you'd uh, join me as we open prayer, that'd be great. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for... This passage, we thank you that this passage is included in our scriptures. I think if we take it seriously, we will walk away humbled, walk away with, with new eyes. I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that we would not allow expectations to get in the way of us seeing the way you work. pray, Lord, that we would not stand before your word and ask it to adapt to us but that we would adapt to it. Amen. So today's passage, what we're going to learn from today's passage is that the redemption God brings 
challenges our expectations. The redemption God brings challenges our expectations. And so we're going to see two ways in which it challenges our expectations, as well as receive a lesson from having our expectations challenged. So two ways it challenges our expectations, followed by a lesson. So the first way God's redemption challenges our expectations is this. The Messiah doesn't look how we would expect. Let's reread verses 2 and six, two through 6 one more time, just to refresh it in our minds. So when, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, or the deeds of the Messiah, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So John the Baptist was a relative of Jesus, and he had a ministry that he operated by the banks of the Jordan River, where he called the nation of Israel to prepare themselves for the arrival of their God. He called them to repentance. He was a very, very prominent figure. He had an enormous following and an even bigger group of people who were interested or offended by him. He was extremely effective, but he got arrested. This was recorded really early in Matthew, and we haven't heard anything from John in quite a long time, ever since his arrest. So no news seems to have made its way to Jesus or his disciples, but apparently news about Jesus is making its way to John. John has been sitting in prison. He's hearing more and more of these amazing things that Jesus is doing, yet the, the thing that he's not hearing is all the stuff that he expects the Messiah to do when the Messiah comes. John is waiting for judgment to occur. John is, is waiting for the faithful Jews to be brought together. He's waiting for evil to be crushed. And so he sends out his disciples and he asks Jesus, so are you the one we're waiting for? Are you really Messiah? Because I thought you were, and I expected these things to occur. And so Jesus responds to John, and he responds to John's disciples by sending them back with this whole list of things that, that Jesus has been doing, giving the deaf hearing again, the, the blind are seeing, the dead are being raised. These are, Jesus speaks in a way where it actually like mirrors a couple passages out of Isaiah. So, so Jesus is really driving the point home like, no, 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 I am fulfilling scripture right now. I'm doing stuff. The Messiah does. So go and tell John to examine the evidence. Who does he say I am if I'm fulfilling these words? But here's the thing. John already knows what Jesus is doing. Did you catch that? It says that John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. So Jesus, in a way, Jesus is telling him something he already knows. And so Jesus adds this phrase at the end. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. I've met some, some folks, you know, having spiritual conversations and coffee shops or whatever, and sometimes I run into folks who say something like, I can't believe in Jesus. I can't believe that he really is the one that's supposed to save the world because he wouldn't have saved the world in the way he did. He would have made his identity obvious. If God really wanted to save people, then he would have made his existence clear to me 
and he would have sent Jesus in, in a way that would have been clear to me. He wouldn't have come maybe as a lowly human, or if he did, he would have done something bigger, more earth-shattering. If God had done something like that, I could believe. And if you're here and that describes you or, or describes doubts that you're, you're feeling, know that I'm not trying to judge at all. But I, I do want to address that question. Because it, it would have been really, really similar to some of the doubts that people had in Jesus' time. And I think in some ways, it's similar to the doubts that John is having. Why would God save the world this way? If Jesus was really the Messiah, then he'd be showing up with an iron fist He'd be toppling the power structures of his day, establishing himself as king. Why doesn't he unleash his power and make himself obvious? And I think if that describes doubts you're having or or doubts that a friend of yours is having, I think Jesus would say to you, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. When you object to Jesus... Because you're objecting to the way Jesus saves. When you do that, what you're really doing is saying, I can't believe in the Christian God because he doesn't save the world in the way I would save the world. He didn't do it according to my expectations, and therefore he couldn't have done it. If God was real, he would make all the same decisions I would make, and he would think the way I think. You see, there's some arrogance behind that. Because it assumes that you really know that much about how redemption should occur and how messiahs should look. It's not a logical objection to faith. It has nothing to do with whether Jesus is messiah. It has everything to do with whether he's the messiah you expected. And sometimes you shouldn't trust your expectations. When God brought about redemption, he did it in a very unexpected way. In a world driven by power and strength, overcoming strength, God redeemed the world through weakness. In a world obsessed with reaching our potential, maximizing our achievements, God chose to come as a servant. In a world in which friends are chosen by how much they bring to my life, how well they serve me, how good I feel about myself when I'm around them, God sought out the neediest in society. Jesus doesn't adjust to our expectations. He expects us to adjust our expectations to him. He did it in the way we need it. In a way that would show us how humans were meant to live for the glory of God and the life of the world. I think that's why John is experiencing doubts. This isn't how he expected the Messiah to look. But of course, that leads us to the next point. The kingdom isn't coming how we expect, right? It's not just that this, Jesus isn't the Messiah that we expect, it's that The way the kingdom is coming isn't the way we expect. Let's read verses 7 to 15. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. 
and the violent take it by force. For all the law, or the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So John's disciples head out, but I want you to imagine for a second how the crowd must have felt after witnessing this interaction. Right, so this crowd, they likely would have been aware of John. They would have probably been pretty into John. He would have had this very powerful reputation. What they just saw happen were disciples come from John saying, John is having some doubts. So imagine what that would do to the crowd. It would shake something in them. Israel hadn't seen a prophet for 400 years, and, and suddenly this man had shown up with a message just like the ancient prophets, a message of repentance and preparation. He even came announcing himself as a forerunner, which would have sent off a bunch of alarm bells in their minds. Then suddenly here's this messenger imprisoned. He's not glorified, and he's in so much doubt that he's sending his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one we were waiting for? So they probably would have been asking a lot of questions. And so Jesus addresses the crowd. Jesus turns to the crowd, and he doesn't just say something about John. He says something about the way history itself is going to play out. So first he kind of challenges them. He, he says, look, you all know that John was something special. You all know he was who he said he was, because why else would you trek into the wilderness to see him? Were you just going to admire the scenery, right? A reed shaken by the wind, like on the banks of the Jordan? Like, oh, that's really pretty. Clearly, that wasn't why you were there, right? Were you there to see a man in soft clothing, right? Someone who makes himself comfortable in the houses of kings. Someone who, who knows how to tell someone what they want to hear. Clearly not. You went into the wilderness to see a prophet. But here's where it gets interesting. Jesus says John wasn't just a prophet, he was the last prophet. So let me explain. Jesus quotes this verse here, and it comes from the book of the prophet Malachi. Malachi is located right before Matthew in your Bibles. It's the, in many English Bibles, it's the last book of the Old Testament. And there's this moment in chapter 3 of Malachi where God's people, the nation of Israel, they're, they're in dispute with God. And Israel is sort of stubbornly accusing God. This is the passage that Everett read this morning. They're stubbornly accusing God of, of being indifferent toward evil. They're asking, where is the God of justice? When is God going to do something about evil? And ironically, Malachi goes into how they're guilty of a number of injustices in that very same dispute. So, like, it's funny to hear that coming out of their mouth. But in any case, they, they don't, that doesn't matter to them. So they accuse God of not doing anything about evil. Where is the God of justice? And God responds to their question there in chapter 3. He responds by telling them, Don't worry, a day is coming where I will give my final answer to evil. This would have been known as the the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It's a, a huge concept. Malachi was not the first person to make reference to this. This was all through the prophets. This idea of the day of the Lord would have been very familiar. It was going to be this day where God himself would visit his people Israel. It was going to be this day when God would have victory over evil, and it was going to be this day when God would separate his true people from the false. All that was going to take place on the day of the Lord. So all that was pretty familiar. But what Malachi really develops is this idea that's present elsewhere, but he really leans into it, this idea that the day of the Lord was going to be preceded by a messenger. That before that day came 
came upon them, there would be this forerunner that would go to prepare the way for the day of the Lord. At one point, Elijah calls this messenger Elijah, the Elijah to come. So he's developing this image even more. So this messenger, he's not just a messenger, he's a prophet, a prophet like Elijah. So this prophet messenger is going to show up right before the great day of the Lord, and he'll announce that Yahweh is on his way. Yahweh is about to visit his people, and therefore Israel needs to repent and prepare their hearts because the kingdom is coming. So hear the significance of what Jesus is saying. He's saying that this messenger, the Elijah, has just shown up, and it really was John the Baptist. John really was a prophet. In fact, he was the last prophet who's supposed to come before the coming of God himself. What does that say about how Jesus views himself? The implication to the crowd is that the person standing in front of them is so much more than a teacher. The implication to the crowd is that as these folks are listening to Jesus, they are listening to Yahweh in the flesh visiting them. It means that God is dwelling among them right there in front of them. And it means that the kingdom has really now broken into the world and it hasn't fit any of our expectations. No one experienced the kingdom to suffer violence. No one expected the kingdom to to come while John is in prison and Jesus is prepping disciples to suffer persecution. No one expected the kingdom to arrive right under the nose of Rome and not stage a revolt, but instead to walk with peace and nonviolence. Folks expected the kingdom to come by overthrow. No one expected it to spread little by little, like yeast in a ball of dough, as the followers of the Lord love their neighbors and share with them the news that God has come to us. No one expected that kind of kingdom. Some theologians refer to this concept as the already but not yet, right? The kingdom is here already. Jesus is among us. He's come. He's brought the kingdom. He's, he's brought together the people of God, but the kingdom's not here yet. There's much still to come. But that doesn't mean that things aren't fundamentally different now. In fact, we, in some ways, we live in a really beautiful time. Jesus has this statement where he says, Among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus isn't saying that John isn't going to make it into the kingdom, that John isn't going to be saved. That's not what Jesus is saying. Instead, he's saying that John, living in the age he lived, only had access to so much, but that you, because you live in the time after the Messiah, you have access to so much more. Back in April, our former pastor Dan and I went to a conference in Memphis that was commemorating the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. And at one point in the conference, they interviewed John Perkins. I think some of you probably, probably know him. He was a big evangelical civil rights leader, has written just a ton of books, and is really a very wonderful man. The stuff that he, he suffered is, is hard to even imagine. He saw, back in the 70s, he saw his brother gunned down by police. Uh, he suffered a number of beatings within inches of his life at nonviolent protests. And then even after the, the sort of 
close of the main part of the civil rights movement, he, he still spent so much of his life trying to address the fact that to this day, many churches are, are segregated. That to this day, black folk and white folk tend to worship apart. So he's, he's really been an amazing advocate. He's suffered enormously. And then here he is at this conference talking about all this terrible stuff that he's gone through. His body's clearly broken. His speech is slurred by stroke. And he turns to the audience at one point and just says, we live in a beautiful time. We live in a beautiful time. And I remember just getting choked up in my seat because I don't feel like we live in a beautiful time. I don't feel like there's anything about living in this age that makes it better than living in the age of John the Baptist. I see our nation divided. I see our rhetoric tearing each other apart with zero charity on both sides of the aisle. I see rioting and slander and political blood sport. I see lives falling apart, relationships deteriorating, poverty's not improving. I see anxiety all across the globe. War continues, and all of this grieves the heart of God, should grieve our hearts. But John Perkins says we live in a beautiful time. And I think there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, We live in a beautiful time. We lose sight of this, but have you ever thought recently about, you know, take all of Israel's history, all that long waiting. Have you ever thought how amazing it is that you know the name of the Messiah? That you know where he was born? That you read his words? That you've seen the way he's treated people? Have you ever thought about how you don't only know his name, you pray in it? Have you ever thought about how we have seen the great inclusion of the Gentiles? We have seen God's people expand far beyond the tent of Israel to include people of different tongues and nations and languages and with the numbers still growing. Have you ever thought about how we get to experience the comfort and guidance of the Spirit? How we have known what it is to be brought together as a new nation, the church. That we have known what it is to be included in God's mission. We have known the hope that comes from the resurrection. The promise that all things are going to be made right. We have seen the kingdom partially already already, but not yet. And sure, there's suffering to come, but no matter the suffering, no matter the difficulty, no matter how marginalized our voices become, we live in a beautiful time. We live in the dawning of the kingdom. Messiah doesn't look the way we'd expect. His kingdom doesn't come the way we'd expect. So here's the lesson for us. Don't trust your expectations. Let's read verses 16 through 19. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came eating, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So there was this experience I had when I was pretty young. And the memory is very fuzzy. For all I know, it's like a conglomeration of multiple memories that have sort of congealed into one. But whatever, I'll share it. So I would have been under 10 when this happened. 
And I had a friend that we, we'd never played chess before, but, but here we go, we're playing chess. And at the beginning, I felt like I was doing pretty good. I, was, I don't know if you've played chess or not, but, so hopefully this makes sense. But I was taking pieces, and I was kind of closing in on the king, which is the, the object of chess, to make it so that the king can't move without being threatened by another piece. So I was closing in on the king, and then suddenly my friend just takes his king and just moves it multiple spaces. So I was like, that's clearly not a legal move, dude. You can't do that. Like, if you don't know chess, the king can only move one space at a time in any direction. So for him to just kind of move it across the board, like, clearly that's not a legal move. Like, no, 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 I learned this in chess class. You can do that. Oh, well, if you learned it in chess class, then you probably know way more than I do. Can I do that? He's like, well, I mean, the pieces, the way they are with you, I don't think you could, but I can in this situation. Okay, well, he knows best. He goes to chess class. So... But I'm still not doing too bad. I sort of recover, and I start closing in on the king again. And then suddenly he says, have you ever heard of this move called airplane? It's when the, the king, you pick up your king, and you just knock off all the other person's pieces. I don't know what my reaction was at that point, but I really hope I got up and walked away. Because clearly, at that moment, something should have become clear to me. He wasn't interested in playing chess. He was interested in winning chess. Right? He wasn't interested... In, in actually playing a game and, and, and measuring where he actually is as far as a chess player, he was just interested in winning. Jesus mounts this accusation at this generation, this generation that claimed to love John, this generation that claimed to be looking for the Messiah. And he, he says that they're like children playing instruments in the streets. First, they start playing the flute. And people start dancing, as you normally would if they start playing the flute. And then suddenly they say, like, why are you guys dancing? Don't you know we're playing a dirge? And, and suddenly everybody's supposed to adjust to what they say they're doing. Because at the end of the day, all they're interested in is having control. In being the ones who call the shots. So John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, well, obviously he's not a man from God. Look at how he doesn't eat or drink. He must have a demon, though, in order to live a lifestyle like he lives. So then Jesus comes up eating and drinking. Well, he can't be a man from God. Look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. If he was from God, he wouldn't be spending his time with those people. At the end of the day, it becomes clear they're not interested in having a word from God. They're interested in being affirmed in what they're already doing. How often are we the same? We aren't interested in truthfulness. We're interested in being right. We're not interested in reconciliation. We're interested in winning fights. We aren't interested in the words of Scripture or the words of a friend in Christ if they convict us of sin. We're only interested if they affirm something we're already doing. We are trying to make God in our image. But I don't get to conform God to the image of Mike. God is conforming me to the image of Christ. I think it's important for us often to ask ourselves the question, are you following Jesus or are you trying to get Jesus to follow you? We can't trust our expectations because most of the time we just expect what we want. And we want bad things a whole lot of the time. So we can't trust our expectations. 
To sum up, the redemption of God, the redemption God brings challenges our expectations. Messiah doesn't look the way we'd expect. His kingdom doesn't come in the way we'd expect. So we must not trust our expectations, but shame on us if we miss the beauty of redemption. Just because we wanted it our way. Shame on us if we can't recognize the strength of God and the weakness of Christ. Because with Christ, the day of the Lord really did arrive. Already, but not yet. In Christ, Yahweh visited his people, not in a cloud of fire and smoke and power as in the old days, but in the frailty of one of our own bodies. In Christ, God began the work of restoring creation, and he is including his followers in the process. In Christ, the true people of God really were set apart from the false, but the true people of God didn't look the way anyone expected. They were Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, men and women, and all of them broken with need and broken with sin. And out of them, to show his power, God took their weakness, the least qualified, and he formed his people. In Christ, God really did deliver his answer to evil, but he didn't do it with the methods of evil. By force and murder, through reckless ambition, he did it through self-emptying love and through a cross and the unmerited forgiveness of sins. He used what is foolish to shame the wise. He used what is weak to shame the strong. So that while some will look at the cross, absolutely, some will look at the cross and they'll say, that's not how God would save the world. That's not how I would save the world. We will look to the cross and say, that is my salvation. That is my hope. That is the answer to all the evil in the world. That is the promise of a world made right. That is the forgiveness of my sins. That is the victory over the powers of darkness. That's the crowning of my king. And it's the launch of his kingdom. The kingdom is not the one we expected, but it is the one that will save the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you defy our expectations. I pray, Lord, that now as we move into a time of of worship, we would come to you grateful for the grace that you have given us, that you have taken people who who can be so arrogant, and you have loved us even while we were still sinners. I pray, Lord, that you would give us humility, that we would be receptive to your words in Scripture and in the words of of your people. I pray, Lord, that that you would develop us more and more into the image of Christ. That you would conform us to your way of life. You have shown us what, what, the, what genuine humanness is. And the truth is that in our sin, we are only partially human, but I pray, Lord, that you would grow us into the image of Christ, into your way And also, Lord, the kingdom is already, but not yet. I pray that soon it would only be already. Please come quickly, Lord. I pray that you would bring an end to evil in our world. Soon.